Welcome to the Death Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of death studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. I am recording this baby free, which is nice to just be able to sit and yeah, talk without <laughs> having to have my eye on something else. I did notice when I listened back to this excellent episode, I love this episode, I love all the episodes, that I sound like really like a, yeah, not like, I think you described it as not like a real person. So before, the, one of the reasons I had quite a lot of confidence in like editing stuff and putting podcasts and stuff together is that before... I moved to Cornwall. I used to volunteer every, um, well, to be fair, I actually kept doing it in Cornwall when when the pandemic hit because we went online, but I volunteered for the Bedfordshire and District Audio News, which is talking newspaper for people with visual impairment. And we would like sit and read news articles. So when you sit and read the news article, obviously you do it with like utmost clarity, kind of like BBC voice, like this is the question. <laughs> um, but consequently, now when I'm recording this, podcast if I've got like the baby around me or I'm a bit like distracted by having to look after the kids or something I totally revert to what I call my b-dan voice where I'm like you know this week in the news 873 cats were discovered in somebody's house or something like that like we'd always try and pick the cutest stories yeah, you sound a bit like a sat nav direction person <laughs> I, wish I would be a good sat nav direction person <laughs> Back to topic, just forgive me for the fact that in the first few questions, I do sound rather robotic and blame my adorable children. Now, very excited to talk to our guest because Ruth, who we speak to today, Dr. Ruth Penfold Mount, was my doctoral examiner and absolutely lovely, wonderful person. And it's great to have the chance to chat to Ruth. I've always enjoyed talking to her and I met her at something called the Death and Culture Conference, which I think you are going to now tell us a little bit more about. Death and Culture is a conference that's held biannually, meaning every other year, not twice a year, at in York, at the University of York, or at the other one. Do they do they alternate, or is it sometimes in the one, or sometimes at the other, or am I just making things up now? When I've been to it in the past, it's both. It's always been at the University of York, and I think it was then meant to be at York St John's when it had to go online because of pandemics. And now they get to for real do it at York St. John. Yes. And we, you and I, are very excited that we will be there in person and we will have a little stand for the podcast. And we are also very exciting because some exciting, uh, how much can I say the word exciting? Not enough. There are very (laughs) exciting developments because we have had some merchandise made for us. So there are are some lovely sweatshirts and buttons and depending on how crazy we'll get in the upcoming months there might be some more stuff but start saving your pennies and bring your hard cash to york or cards we'll take anything and buy something with our nice swanky logo on it though seriously i don't think we can take card please bring (laughs) (laughs) we can do bank transfer (laughs) but yeah very excited and it would just be great to see. I, I understand there's quite a lot of people going who we sort of know through the Twitter Death Studies community and various places. And for anyone who can't make it, then we will do our best to bring you some of the death and culture joy via the podcast. 
Absolutely. And I also think for anyone who's going to attend York, uh, drop us a line on any kind of social media or via email. And also, if you're at the conference, just come visit us and we'll ha we are happy to answer any questions around deaf studies, around podcasting, life, whatever. Come and talk to us. Come and talk to us for life advice. I'm not sure anyone <laughs> wants life advice from us. But yes, it will be great. And we've got a bit of info about the keynotes which is all available online so yeah we're very excited that one of the keynotes at the conference is dr cami fletcher and as you may well remember she was featured as one of our guests in an earlier episode so if you want to see her in person join at the conference but also if you want to already have some questions backed up in your mind maybe already go to our episode and have a listen and then you can ask some direct questions when you see her in person because I don't know about you but whenever I meet what I think are big names in person I never know what to ask I'm always so jealous of people who can just walk up to someone and strike up a conversation I'm the kind of person who awkwardly by the coffee machine if you happen to be the person next to me I will talk to you but I will never go to you and ask like a very pertinent question I will be just too shy and too introverted so maybe if you want to have some backup questions already have some listenings to some prior episodes hashtag networking tips that's a lovely <laughs> idea I once did this leadership program which was great I won't name it it was absolutely great um, but one of the tips I was given by someone was like when you meet someone in a networking event after you've spoken to them write down in the back of your notebook or somewhere else like the information they've told you about themselves so that if you see them again you can ask so you know if you meet someone and they're like oh yes you know my son or daughter is at Eton or Oxford mm. wherever or, or you know anyway and then you can be like oh yes next time you see them how is young Samuel doing or <laughs> I, just, I could not bear it I just no I've not brought myself to do it so apologies if I don't remember your children's names I'm sure you don't remember mine either <laughs> I would be like oh yeah you are the person who drinks your tea black because the, those they're very coffee and tea based anecdotes or we like the same biscuits or whatever but it's also well an episode that we will launch in the future is with Gil Lever Leatherby and she met one of her academic collaborators on a toilet somewhere so you also never know where you might meet people <laughs> Yeah, and she starts a paper, doesn't she, with a woman in a toilet yeah. in York. And that, who knows who we're going to meet in the toilet in York this year? Exactly. So excited. Okay, let's get down to business. Today's guest is Dr. Ruth Penfold Mounts. Ruth is a senior lecturer in criminology in the sociology department at the University of York. Her background in sociology and criminology are united with an interest in crime and deviance death studies and popular culture and celebrity. Ruth leads the Death and Culture Network at the University of York, co-edits the Death and Culture book series and hosts the Death and Culture Conference every two years. She also does regular public engagement events and media appearances. She is author of the book Death, the Dead and Popular Culture, as well as numerous other publications, including an award-winning journal article on gender inequality after death, all of which are discussed in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Ruth. Can you please begin by telling us a bit about what academic disciplines you tend to position your work in and where death studies fits into your career and research interests? 
it's it's an interesting question to start with because I feel like I bridge an awful lot of different disciplines and I think that reflects quite a few people who work in death studies in general but by background I am a criminologist but I'm based in a sociology department but I kind of slide into death studies so I kind of bridge these different sort of approaches but ultimately I would say that I am a, a criminologist um, and, you know, approaching something like criminology from that sort of sociological background and, uh, like I say, sliding into the study of death because there's some brilliant overlaps that other sociologists and other criminologists have just totally missed. You know, if you're thinking about crime, the, the most dramatic of crimes, murder, it's about death. But criminologists, they haven't written about it. So um, that was where I sort of slid over into death studies, I think. Now, one topic that you've written on for several journals is the idea of frivolous or glossy topics in research, with glossy topics defined uh, by you as those largely found to be of public interest, but perhaps not considered to be of public value. Can you please elaborate on this idea for us? So my interest in sort of these glossy topics has been largely rooted in a mild obsession with celebrity. Now, I struggle to keep up with celebrity in general now. I think I'm showing my age. People I classify as celebrities, I think some of the students I talk with now, they're like, who? Um, And they talk about people they think are famous. And I'm like, what? Never heard of them. So there's some interesting things that go on with celebrity. But my interest in celebrities rooted right back. I mean, this is going back decades now to my PhD when I was thinking about um, celebrities who commit crimes and how do they actually truly get justice. And so my sort of sort of step, I suppose, into sort of popular culture and celebrity, these glossy topics began right back at the start of my academic career. But something that I've always found really challenging is by looking at popular culture, by looking at uh, celebrity, it feels a bit lightweight. It's something that's a bit too fun to be almost taken seriously. And in academic circles, when people are studying really hardcore, heavyweight issues uh, like death rates or health or class, I've always struggled with the fact that I'm doing something that sounds just too fun to be taken seriously. So I started working on various projects that actually started to explore this um, almost imposter syndrome, I suppose, about being interested in this particular sort of topic area, these glossy topics. And this definition of, um, you know, being largely found to be of public interest, but not um, considered of public value is something I've developed to try and help explain why we should be thinking about these sort of glossy issues like celebrity, that actually the public is interested in high profile, well-known individuals. But there is that challenge of, you know, what value is there in looking at these sort of frivolous, over the top kind of characters? So that's where I sort of got interested in that. And it's very much rooted in trying to offer a justification in the value of looking at something that is very much a fun topic, um, but that it does have academic value. And that's within sociology, that's within criminology, or even within death studies as well. Thanks, Ruth. Some ideas that have emerged across a range of your writing that are perhaps especially pertinent to those interested in death studies relate to the following terms that you've coined. The thanatological imagination, morbid sensibility, and morbid spaces. And these are ones that I particularly like to adopt in my own writing as well. Can you please tell us a bit about these terms and your use of them? 
Thanks, Beth. It's really nice to know that someone actually reads my work and actually, you know, has drawn from it. You know, I think as every academic's personal nightmare is my work actually reaching anybody. So thank you for that. So these three concepts, yeah, they're ones I had, a, a, again, I think research can be really fun and I love what I do. And I had real fun developing these terms. And it's something I think that really underpins my work is I'm, I really enjoy and see value in developing concepts that help people to um, understand and engage with particularly sort of complex ideas. So they've got kind of a term to use. So let's start with that thanatological imagination. Now, this is really rooted in C. Wright Mill's 1959 concept of the sociological imagination. And he was actually offering a challenge that sociology is often done by non-sociologists and often non-sociologists do it better than actual sociologists. So he was talking about people in newspapers and films and even in charity work. So that there's different ways of doing sociology. Now, I expanded this and also worked with and seen other people in criminology doing a similar thing, developing this idea of a criminological imagination, that it's not just academics in these disciplines that um, are engaging with the issues that underpin something like sociology or criminology. So with my interest in death studies, I really thought, well, actually, I think there's something we need to be reflecting on here as well. So let's think about a thanatological imagination. And this is where um, I think it's important to celebrate the multiplicity of voices and backgrounds of people who are doing death work. You don't just have to be a sociologist, for example, to be uh, doing death studies, to be engaging a thanatological imagination. And I think the other key part to think about here is the actual word imagination. I think it's incredibly significant for academics and non-academics to be imaginative. We think about children. Children are hugely creative, hugely imaginative. And a lot of us tend to sort of downplay this or lose this or stop embracing it as we get older. But I think that um, as death scholars, this is something we should be doing. Let's be creative again. Let's be imaginative in the topics we're thinking about, in the approaches that we take. And, you know, death studies, there are a lot of really deeply sensitive and challenging issues that you're encountering. You're dealing with death. But there are still creative and imaginative ways that we can engage with this that can often help bridge public discomfort. I don't believe there's a death taboo. I will state that firmly here. But there is death discomfort with a huge number of people. It's something they don't necessarily want to engage with or they find difficult to engage with. So as death scholars, I think it's our role to be imaginative um, and sort of help bridge that gap. So that's the thanatological imagination. What about these other two concepts that you've asked me about? I'm going to start with morbid spaces first. And this was originally inspired by a family friend buying a flat in an old asylum. Now, this particular asylum um, was a, a huge rambling building that was near my, my birth town back in Dorset. And it had quite a reputation for the people who lived there or were held there. Uh, if you ever went in the grounds um, when there were still the, the mentally ill were being um, held there, you would hear screaming. It was quite a frightening place with quite a reputation. Now, when that closed down, they started to convert it into flats. and this family friend who bought one of these flats didn't seem to mind, but I was left thinking, the people that live within the walls, 
you know, is there, I'm not talking about the paranormal here, I'm not talking about ghosts, but the idea of the suffering that went on in those walls, and if those walls could talk. And so I started thinking about this has actually been quite a morbid space, because there was death, there was suffering that went on there. And then I thought, well, there's other places and spaces like that. And I'm not just talking about um, execution points um, that, that, you know, have very sort of long histories um, or even about places like morgues. The dead are contained there, for example, or anatomy labs. It's, it's a morbid space. Death um, is very much embraced there. But then I started thinking, but there are other types of morbid space other than the physical that actually we can have morbid spaces that are virtual or popular spaces. And I'm thinking here about video gaming. You know, I have a, a nine-year-old and he very much likes shooting games. He likes going and shooting lots of people. It's a very morbid space. Um, but also films um, that are designed to be emotive and really engage our emotions. And we are exploring those sort of morbid issues, books and even artwork. So morbid spaces to me is about physical spaces, but also about these sort of virtual and popular spaces. And from that, I started to engage with this morbid sensibility. So these two work sort of hand in hand together. And this is referring to the idea of taking cultural artefacts. And um, I very much work with the undead, so vampires, zombies as a sort of cultural artefact and using them as a vehicle to explore death and selfhood in popular culture spaces. So this is where you can use something that is very unreal, like the undead. I don't believe they're real. Vampires are not hidden among us. And I don't believe we're going to encounter a zombie apocalypse. But we can use these ideas as a tool, as a launch pad to explore bigger issues. And I suppose this then goes full circle back to the thanatological imagination, because something like the undead can inspire our thanatological imagination. Um, it's held within morbid spaces and engages our morbid sensibility. So those are the three concepts. Thank you so much, Ruth. I'm thoroughly looking forward to the publication of what you should definitely do, the Ruth Penfold Mount Dictionary of Death, <laughs> and put all of your key terms in. I want an entry on death discomfort, um, morbid sensibility, morbid space, and definitely the thanatological imagination. I think it'd be great. I love it. I'm totally going to do that now, Beth. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to move on now to um, an article you've published titled Value, Bodily Capital and Gender Inequality After Death. And this was published in Sociological Research Online, the academic journal. And I think before that was disseminated as a conversation article and picked up by The Telegraph and the BBC. And then it recently won the Sage Prize for Innovation and Excellence. Congratulations, Ruth. Uh, can you please tell us about the research and these different ways that you find an audience for this piece and how the project sort of developed, please? Uh, this particular piece feels like it's been going on forever. I feel like I've had so many conversations with people about this over the years um, and they must always be getting bored of me going on about all oh, posthumous careers, dead rich people, let's look at this. I think it's important and not just dead rich people but celebrity dead rich people. So it has a very long development. And again, I think some of it, the origins go right back once again to my PhD when I was looking at these celebrities who commit crimes and how we deal with them and criminals who become celebrities because of their crimes. 
because what came out of that PhD thesis and those ideas was actually encountering the superstition around the famous criminal dead and executions and the power of the dead criminal body. Now, from that, I discovered that there was huge amounts of value of people wanting to buy bits of recently executed criminals because of healing powers. So as soon as there's money involved, I started getting quite interested in this. But it wasn't until about 2015 that I encountered by accident, pretty much. I can't remember the actual day I encountered it. The Forbes top earning dead celebrity list or the dead rich list. And I started looking at this dead rich list that's been published since I think it was 2001. And I started looking at some of the names that were published annually. October is my favorite month of the year. I don't do Halloween, but I do do the dead rich list when it gets published. I'm still waiting for this year's. I'm quite excited to see who's on it. Has Michael Jackson been knocked off the top spot? Are there still any women on it or not? Um, But I started looking at these lists and I noted at just how few women were on this list. So I started to think about this in more detail. And ultimately, it became this journal article. But as part of my sort of thought processes, I um, approached the conversation and um, wrote a piece for them. Slightly annoying, it was published for Halloween. They saw that as a research hook. But, you know, I can forgive them for that. Um, But it helped me start to bring my ideas together. And I got some really good sort of feedback on that um, with sort of comments and things that that you can get through conversation published pieces. And then ultimately it started to get written into a journal article. Now, one of the challenges that I find as a writer is I, I have lots of great ideas, but then making sure that the theoretical engagement is really solid. I can find that really hard. You know, I'm I'm fairly well established. I'm a senior lecturer, but I can quite happily ha- hold my hands up and say, I still find this challenging. And after multiple rejections from various journals, from multiple criticisms, this article gradually grew and Sociological Research Online ultimately published it for me. Um, and um, when I heard that I was nominated uh, for the, the, the sort of SAGE Prize for Innovation and Excellence, I was not only genuinely flabbergasted, I was absolutely gobsmacked when they told me that they they decided I'd won. Um, Because I suppose um, I still find it challenging in that I I principally work with with data that's secondary data. I don't tend to work with humans. I don't gather sort of original data in that sense. And I think my career is quite defined by that. And I think I can sometimes feel a bit of imposter syndrome with that of, you know, what is my value? Um, So it just feels fantastic that actually uh, this was sort of recognized as having value as using something in quite an innovative way um, and it it tied in beautifully with bodily capital and drawing on heavenly bodies which is actually a concept produced by Richard Dyer in sort of film studies so I was able to really draw on different disciplinary approaches and this feels like a real pinnacle in my career um, so I'm I'm still really chuffed about it it's ridiculous how chuffed I am about it still I love it. I, I've just written down the that rich list. I think I remember you speaking about uh, this at a keynote you gave in Bath, which must have been, I'm thinking 2016 or 2017. 
because I've never seen someone so delighted that Prince and David Bowie died. Because for your research, that was like, great. Everyone else was having a meltdown on Twitter and 2016, what have you done? And you were just celebrating, thinking, yes, excellent research data. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I remember doing that talk. So again, it feels like this has been a slow burn, this particular work, but actually getting to present on it and talk about it um, really helps you sort of bring your ideas together. I'm, I think it's really great sometimes to present something that isn't beautifully tied up and perfect, that actually this is a chance to get feedback and, and keep developing your ideas. And yes, sharing my general delight. And I don't mean this in the sense of wishing anybody dead, but for my research, when someone dies, actually, if they're a celebrity, it's really exciting. And you've already mentioned the conversation because you originally wrote about body capital, etc., in the conversation. And you've also written some other articles, including one on Princess Diana's death and another one on why children should be taught about death in schools and also why people are generally fascinated by crime. For people who are not familiar with the conversation, could you please explain um, what this is and also why you find it important to write for something like the conversation? So the conversation is a not-for-profit media outlet. Uh, it publishes news stories related to research written by academics from everywhere, really, all around the world. Uh, but there's a lot of, of UK-based um, academics and experts who write for it. You're given about 800 words, which a lot of academics find hugely challenging because people tend to like writing long. So there's a real challenge with that. And uh, the articles that are, are published under a Creative Commons license. Now, this means that they can be republished in other media outlets. So if you've got the catchy headline and you've got the tone right and you get lots of support from the conversation, they will help edit your work to help you write in the appropriate style because it's not writing an essay. It is a, a much more of that sort of newsy style. It can then get uh, published by other sources. And this is where my work's been picked up and published by The Telegraph and Guardian and, and other places. It's always really exciting when you sort of see your name actually being published in some of these sort of quite high profile sort of broadsheets or even tabloids. Um, it, it is great when you see that your work is not just being heard in an academic silo. It's actually reaching out and it's engaging people outside of the ivory towers of academia, which I think is just so essential to what we do now. I absolutely agree. And in addition to uh, writing for the conversation, you've also organized Deaf Walks and various other initiatives in York. And I'm very envious because I'm rarely in York. You've also established the Death and Culture Network. And could you explain to us what a Death Walk is and also what the aims of the Death and Culture Network are? So the Death Walk fits within the network. So I'll start with the network. The Death and Culture Network, or DACnet, is um, held within the city of York um, and it's run by four academics who are based in two universities within York. York St John is where Jack Denham is based. Uh, Julie Rugg and Ben Poor and myself are based at the University of York but we're all in different departments. I'm in sociology, Ben is in theatre, film and TV and uh, Julie is in social policy and social work. So all of us have a sort of death interest but we come at death from a very cultural perspective. None of us have that sort of medicalized interest or sort of health-based interest. And we recognize that there was a real gap in the death studies market um, in terms of finding a home for scholars who are interested in death and culture. 
And I mean, culture is such a fabulously broad term. You can interpret it in so many ways, whether it's popular culture or international culture or, you know, rituals and culture. There's so many different aspects to it. So we adopted this term um, in relation with death and we developed this network as a sort of free floating network. It's not a research centre as such which means there's a greater degree of flexibility and adaptability, which we really enjoy. As part of DACnet, we um, tend to run public engagement events and also academic events. Sometimes they're sort of day events, uh, but we also run an international conference every other year. Last year, because of the pandemic, it was online. Uh, but in 2022, you need to get to York because we will be holding um, DACnet 4 um, in, in York. We don't have, we don't run the conference with a key theme. We really want to embrace what's going on out there. We have contacted our keynotes and we will be drip feeding that information slowly in the coming months, but we're very excited about who we've got coming to York to speak. As part of um, DACnet, we also um, are really interested in engaging people uh, about death, both at an academic level, so but not just academics, but also students. So our postgraduate students and our undergraduate students and how they can learn about mortality, about death, dying and the dead. And so um, with Matt Coward Gibbs, who's an associate lecturer in my department here at York, we developed the Death and Culture Walk and it sits within the umbrella, I suppose, of DACnet. It's a pedagogical tool. It's a fully podcasted, self-guided walk around the centre of York. So you get to see the sights of York um, and encounter a lot of the stories and tales about York. So a lot of the podcasts, which are nice and short, uh, relate to key sites, but also relate to things that we think are really important for people to be aware of. Uh, the Death and Culture Walk uh, is built actually into at least one module that I'm aware of, that actually we send our students out on this walk to get to know their city, but also to engage with the history and stories about death and dying. The walk was actually launched back in 2019. We held an exhibition. I got to give a lecture. That was fantastic. Um, and also we did release a short film that was shown in a 360 degree cinema that's held at York. So you stand in this room with these screens going around. It's fantastic. I didn't even know we had one of these until I was asked to do it. And we also served Victorian funeral biscuits, this launch event, which was such a highlight. Um, these funeral biscuits were based on a Victorian recipe and the York Castle Museum actually uh, shared an authentic Victorian funeral biscuit uh, stamp. It's like a, a, a it leaves an imprint on the sort of buttery biscuit. We had a replica made from the original, including we can still see the little woodworm holes in the replica. And we had lots of these biscuits made. And uh, it was fantastic to see people having a cup of tea and eating these biscuits, having thought about death and then looking at the exhibition. So the, the Death and Culture Walk is something that I'm immensely proud of developing and it's something that we can still keep adding to as new issues come up. We can record and add further broad uh, sort of podcasts in the future as well. That sounds absolutely brilliant. And I think it also really moves into our next question rather smoothly because your online research profile at York states that you are now developing a career focus on pedagogy and which is the method and practice of teaching 
and we note that you were also nominated and awarded, highly commended for the York University Student Union Excellence Awards as PhD Supervisor of the Year in 2017, as well as having won the Vice-Chancellor Teaching Award for Career Excellence and why all these titles are so worthy. <laughs> Congratulations on winning both of them. Could you tell us a bit about your approach to teaching? I think we've got a, a little glimpse with the deaf walks already, but your approach to teaching and supervising students and your general interest in pedagogy. Fantastic. I sound like I'm gathering up all these these dreadful awards. It sounds a bit insane, doesn't it? Um, yeah, again, I just feel really privileged that, that um, my efforts have been sort of recognised in various areas. But you know, I think going into um, lecturing career, research is a driving force, particularly because that's how you often get into becoming a lecturer. But something that I've really become interested in, um, in, in more recent years, is that commitment to teaching. And I think, you know, we have lots of academic staff who are committed to both research and teaching. But something that I think is really important is to be developing our teaching in new ways. Um, again, that imaginative, creative way and sort of designing and launching the, the death walk. But I also was involved in launching uh, the York Crime Walk as well. So we've got a number of walks. Come to York and walk and listen to podcasts. But these walks really inspired me to recognise that there are different ways of teaching our undergraduates and our postgraduates. And it's so important to be helping them learn in creative ways. So my my sort of shift, I suppose, to, to focusing in on the sort of method and practice of teaching in terms of pedagogy, I think is really sort of rooted back in that. The walks have really been the springboard into that interest in, in developing better pedagogy. And looking at modules I teach, looking at um, the curriculum that we run here in York and thinking, how can we do this better? How can we improve student experience so that we can generate interest and passion for learning that will not only go on into sort of their future careers, but also these are some of the, the next generation of academic researchers. So how can we inspire them from a really sort of early stage um, in higher education? So um, I, I think that's where that sort of interest is really lying in terms of sort of practical teaching to undergraduates and postgraduates. As for the sort of PGR students, the postgraduate researchers, they are just still the favourite part of my job, totally the favourite part of my job. Working um, with uh, people who are committing their time and their energy to developing a thesis, either by publication or, or, or the more common way, the sort of, you know, working on that thesis for three to seven years sometimes, you know, I'm always impressed by the commitment of, of you know, researchers who are coming in and committing to those sorts of projects. And I love working with them. I love seeing uh, PhD students go from uh, that sort of uncertain feeling overwhelmed by the project, not sure where it's going, to becoming confident, capable, inspired researchers who are also becoming great teachers. And I, I just find that so exciting. And I've, I've got a lot of PhD students. I think I've got about seven or eight at the moment. I've got quite a few who finished. And I just... I feel like a proud parent in many ways. I don't mean that in a patronizing sense, but, you know, a lot of them have gone on into great jobs. And now they've got PhD students of their own. And it feels like I've got like academic grandchildren and, you know, staying in touch with with those sorts of researchers and seeing them go on and flourish and being able to help encourage them and support them. And I think um, that's something I'm really passionate about is that 
my role as an academic is not just about pushing myself forwards. I want to pull up the next generation behind me. And I know that I have lots of colleagues who feel the same, but um, it's something that just brings a smile to my face is to work with PhD students and to think about the potential that's there and that they are going to be going on to do this groundbreaking stuff and that they are going to get to, you know, keep changing the world. So, yeah, I, I just I love my, my, my postgraduate researchers. I just think they're fantastic. And I'm just wondering, perhaps it doesn't really apply as much for postgraduate students, but particularly like with the death walks, um, it sounds like a lot of your teaching is very hands on and also face to face. So what have been some of the challenges for you in the past year with COVID, etc., and having to teach on a virtual platform? Well, the great thing about the, the both the crime walk and actually the death walk is, of course, it's all fully podcasted and people were allowed to go out even in lockdown for an hour a day. The walk takes about an hour. So as long as you're socially distanced, you can go out and learn a little bit, have some fresh air and still learn. So I think that actually, you know, this walk, the fact that we've recorded it is is really crucial because pandemic or not, it's still there as a learning tool, um, which I think has, has just been really fantastic. Um, as for the challenges of teaching online, you know, initially I was totally freaking out um, and I just thought this is going to be hideous teaching online. And there were some challenges, but I feel actually, again, I've had some of my greatest teaching successes um, during the pandemic. So I stupidly had decided to launch a brand new third year module, Crime Media and Culture. Um, and then the pandemic happened. So I had to redesign this this brand new module to become an online taught module but actually I've had some of the best feedback I've ever had on it from students I built in loads of formative work um, again lots of death was going in with this you know I, if I teach crime there's still loads of death stuff going on because I think it's just the, the intersections are so strong and um, so yeah I, I think it's about being willing to be flexible and to build in the time and to think long term as well you know, if you're constantly being reactive with that teaching, you can't quite keep up. And I think actually having long term projects that develop pedagogy that are rooted in research really help you not only deliver exciting face to face teaching, but give you the flexibility to develop that online teaching as well. So I've actually can confidently say now I'm comfortable teaching in either environment, uh, which if you'd asked me this time last year, I wouldn't have been able to say that. So as part of the Deaf and Culture Network, you also have the Deaf and Culture book series. Is, is that right? Yes. So the Deaf and Culture book series is held with Bristol University Press. Uh, it used to be held with Emerald Publishing, but we transferred it. Um, and what's great about this book series is that we are focused on helping cultivate a forum, a space, a morbid space even, um, for people to publish their work that they might find hard to publish elsewhere because it might not quite fit. It might be too deathy for a sociological book series or it might be, you know, too sociological for um, other sort of death series. So, it's very much um, a series that we want early career researchers to submit proposals to. We want to use this to support and help grow a sort of archive, I suppose, of published work on great topics by great minds from around the world. So if you have ideas, check out the website and get in touch. And in your own contribution of a monograph to the Death and Culture series, you have the book Death, the Dead and Popular Culture which you probably know I, I love and use a lot. 
And one of the things I really like about it is is both the sort of concepts and ideas that you offer there that, that can be adopted and used by, by other researchers to, to further the thinking, but also how you put in really interesting and entertaining examples and anecdotes to illustrate your points. And through that, I sort of discovered that we, we have a mutual love of, of the, the author Thomas Hardy. And one of my favourite of the anecdotes is about someone who has their leg removed for medical purposes and chooses to keep that leg and use it as a lamp. <laughs> it was a tabloid story that I came across. It was probably something like the Daily Mail. And I came across this story of this man who had to have his leg amputated in the Netherlands. And to help cover his medical bills, he decides that he's going to keep this leg and he has it put into a, um, a sort of jar thing. So in preserving chemicals, but it's got a, a light, it's lit up as well. And he was planning on selling it to help cover his medical bills. So you can use it as like a lamp, a glowing lamp. Um, I haven't been able to uncover whether or not he actually sold it. But what's fascinating with that story is it starts to connect with these stories um, or, or issues about, you know, is it okay for people to just have an operation and take home bits of their body? You know, is that acceptable behavior? Do we actually own our body when bits of it are taken out? So it's like, you know, if you have gallstones, can you ask for them back after they've been removed? Or if you have your spleen removed, can you ask to have that back? You know, there's public health issues that come up here, but there's also issues about consent. There are issues about ownership. It connects in with the law. It connects in with all of those sorts of factors, effectively what roots into notions of intellectual property, because that's how bits of the body are sort of dealt with. So I think stories like this, again, I keep, I use lots of bad analogies. I'm really sorry, but it's definitely the springboard. And I'm visualizing here a gymnast running at that springboard and using it to propel themselves into the air. And these sorts of little stories I see as that springboard. They are there to propel us as academics into bigger issues. And it helps keep people interested and inspired. Um, and I am all for that. I've got one for you, Ruth, I think. Um, I've never been able to track down the actual episode, but I once saw an episode of the TV show Come Dine With Me, um, which if you're not familiar with it, the premise is that sort of four or five people get together and over the course of a week they eat at each other's houses. And there was one guy who claimed after people had sat down and eaten a batch of brownies that he'd cooked his wife's placenta into the brownies and then kind of given it to these people to eat. I, I don't know, obviously, if he's telling the truth or not, but people were mortified that they might have consumed this um, and hadn't sort of reacted well throughout the episode to to the sorts of things they've done as a couple or how they'd sort of approached birth and things. And, of course, taking the placenta home has is just very common for some people, but for other people is uh, considered a bit strange. And eating it, I, I suppose, definitely would cause a lot of horror and disgust in some that is absolutely magnificent. I am totally going to have to try and find that. That's fascinating. Because, again, I think when we think about death studies, um, you know, we're thinking about something like placenta was was living. It was helping a sort of a support a baby's growth. But once it's separate from the mother, it's it's dead tissue. And there's that idea of, you know, consuming a human. So there's some cannibalism potential questions that are going on here. And, you know, again, consent. Those those diners didn't necessarily have the, con, you know, didn't consent to that. 
and how potentially violated an individual could feel because of that. So again, yeah, fabulous. Um, I got really interested in the sort of organ donation for a while as well. So the idea of organs that have been donated after someone has died, um, uh, so not a living donor, so we're not talking kidneys here or liver, we're talking about heart, lungs, uh, retinas, those sorts of things. But the sort of urban myths that go on around those sort of body parts that have come from the dead. So if they've been donated, for example, by a criminal, um, you know, are you going to, um, you know, take on those characteristics? And there's a fabulous sort of mythology that surrounds this. So again, this is where that, that connection comes between crime and death. If you have someone like Gary Gilmore, for those of you who aren't familiar, I did write about him. Uh, he was a violent criminal in the US. He was executed by firing squad, but donated or wanted to donate his organs after his execution. Only his eyes were donated and there's there's been a song about it Gary Gilmore's eyes go and google that one or check it out on YouTube and it's all about this idea of waking up and potentially seeing through the eyes of this violent criminal and I, again I think that's it's disturbing but fascinating there is this long-lasting mythology around um, the criminal dead body and its power not only to heal but potentially to take over or influence the living if part of that dead body has been integrated into another living being. I think there's still lots more that can be said and done on that. But questions again, ownership, consent, um, and the power of the criminal dead. It's, it's a topic that continues to be ripe for more research. It's interesting how much of this is negotiated in popular culture as a space, that how many TV shows there are that, that sort of work with this kind of stuff, like American Horror Story, where they bring in the true narratives of serial killers. Or there's a great episode of the TV show Angel, where a lawyer gets a new hand after his hand is cut off, and the hand is that of a, a criminal who's actually still alive. Um, and the hand does evil things, you know, sort of commits crimes whilst attached to his body. And that's the, all those sorts of ideas about yeah consent and, and inequality and why it is that it's so often criminals that are or, or people accused of a crime not necessarily guilty of it that that come into those kinds of discussions yes i'm i'm quite partial to those odd little anecdotes that are out there i do a lot of uh, wading around on various sort of sites whether it's news media and i end up going through a lot of tabloid sites because you can often find some some really way out stories that relate to um, the dead um, in there, but also lots of historical cases as well. So uh, I'm quite interested in history and obviously looking at criminals who've become celebrities um, through my career. I've come across an awful lot of stories around the superstitions that surround the, the criminal dead body. And from that, you know, I, I, I do encounter these just little tidbits that you can just just drop in you know, the fact that there used to be uh, a tendency to collect the finger bones of the executed criminal. And if you kept those finger bones in your purse, it would never go empty. The fact that over in Whitby, near near me up here in North Yorkshire, we've got an official hand of glory for those people who aren't clear on what that is. Uh, if you've seen the Harry Potter films, Draco Malfoy has a hand of glory, and that's the uh, the, the left hand of an executed criminal. Um, it's kind of been dried out. You have the hair of the criminal as wick under the fingernails. You light the wick 
on the, the sort of fingers and it's supposed to grant you light in a dark space where no one else can see. So it's just light for the bearer of the Hand of Glory. And Whitby has one of these. It's one of the most viewed items in this tiny little museum. Um, so I just think it's fantastic to try and come out with and uncover these little little gems of slightly morbid stories because I think it's about developing little hooks little things that just draw people in and help people remember things. Like you said, Beth, you know, like our, our mutual <laughs> interest in, in Thomas Hardy. You know, there's there's sort of little things that you can connect with different people, um, either with the public, with students or with fellow researchers. Um, and I think that's just fantastic because it inspires that thanatological imagination. I think that really reminds me of uh, Meg Rosenblum's book, Dark Archives, which is about books bound in human skin. And she said the only example of someone actually consenting to be bound in human skin was someone in prison who knew he was dying and then he basically bequeathed his skin or body to be bound in books. But it's, it does bring up a lot of ethical tension. Even if someone chooses to do that, it's still a grey area. Absolutely. And, you know, what's quite scary, I mean, you mentioned there sort of like a book bound in human skin is actually surprisingly common. <laughs> again amongst the executed criminals um uh, you know you go back over the last few hundred years and you know a story of their crimes would be written and it would be bound in their skin and put on display because it's it's been tanned so it becomes like leather uh, it's disturbing though i think to sort of contemporary sensibilities um and those ethical questions you're totally right start to really come up you know should we actually keep these artifacts should they be disposed of if we know who the descendants are should that body part of that um sort of ancestor be returned to the family line should it be <laughs> cremated buried um we have instances whereby um skeletons have been put on display of executed criminals and then ancestors have been trying to reclaim those remains in order to bury them when people have there's been a real sort of trend hasn't there for sort of family trees and tracking back in time and then you uncover this this story of a, this sort of criminal relative and then you realize their body's still on display somewhere so there's, again, there's some really big challenges, I think, that's still going on at particular legal level um, in terms of controlling and owning the dead. I think I did some quick searching while you were talking about the Dutch dead man's amputated leg as a Dutch person myself. And I found a Dutch newspaper article saying that he tried to sell it on eBay, but eBay removed the advertisement because it's against their community guidelines to sell human remains. But then again, that begs the question, yeah, why? <laughs> then why? Absolutely. And it's interesting, actually, there is, uh, there is a market for human remains. People um, wanting to buy various sort of bones and things. There is, there is a market for it. So if not on eBay, um, it is still sort of going on. I know that um, eBay did remove um, the fridge that the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer had used from uh, its listings at one point. Uh, he'd actually stored some of his victims in the fridge and actually it did actually, they were, someone was trying to sell it at one point. So there's there's quite a lot of controversy, I think, that goes on around what um, Jack Denham writes about in terms of sort of murderabilia and actually sort of owning parts of the sort of history, all these morbid spaces, um, indulging our morbid sensibilities. Um, and I, I think, again, 
there's a lot to unpack, lots of questions. We don't necessarily will have full answers to, but we need to wrestle with some of these issues, particularly with the rise of uh, sort of social media, with online buying and selling sites. Um, and there is an appetite, it's, it would seem, for consuming, and I'm not talking cannibalism here, but consuming the dead owning the dead, having something of the dead. And, um, you know, some people are going to be more comfortable with that than others. But there's certainly some some ethical challenges that are lingering there. Um, and all of those sorts of questions. So, yes, it remains slightly disturbing, slightly dark, uh, but it's not going away. More needs to be thought about. More discussions need to be had, definitely. And now we have a final question, because we've basically listed off all your achievements to date so far, which has been really good to hear. But we've also hinted at uh, imposter syndrome and um, how do you carve your space in academia for yourself and doing something that might not be considered, quotations, proper academic research. So for our final question, uh, we were wondering what kind of challenges you've experienced in your career to date uh, in terms of re researching death-related topics. And perhaps do you have any kind of advice for early career researchers or postgraduate students? Or perhaps if you could give yourself a note to 20 years, 15 years ago, what, what advice would you give yourself in hindsight? Oh, that's challenging. Let's start with thinking about the challenges I think I've overcome because, I mean, yeah, it, it, it might seem that, you know, I'm, I'm having lots of success, you know, I've won all these awards, that sort of thing. But, yeah, I think imposter syndrome is still a challenge. I think it's something um, that a, a lot of women really do still encounter. And, you know, I, I don't rule myself out from that. I think I, I still do have some of those deep seated insecurities. And there are real sort of challenges to gaining any degree of success or recognition. You know, when you have a success like, you know, you've been nominated for an award or you win an award, there has been so many failures before that. And I think it's so important to be honest and open about the slog it is to get to any degree of success. And I think that's my advice, not only to, um, you know, if I went back in time, some advice to myself, but also to early career researchers as well, is that there is so much that you will encounter that is just so hard. And I think it's important to be honest with yourself and find your group of people, find your people that will support you and will encourage you. And I think it's also really vital to be realistic about what you want out of life. And I feel a bit like a life coach here is, um, you know, I happen to, to work at a Russell Group University, but it's not the be all and end all to end up in a Russell Group or Ivy League University. The key is to find your intellectual home. So my advice for early career researchers would be don't get fixated on trying to get into a Russell Group university. Think about what you want out of life. Do you want to be committing to work all your weekends, all your evenings, take your holiday to do more research? Or do you want to find a better life balance? We are in um, our careers for an awfully long time. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. There will be peaks and troughs in a career over the decades that we are going to work. You know, pensions and retirement. Will any of us ever retire? You know, it's, it's a depressing thought. So make sure you're doing something you love. Make sure you're doing something you're committed to. But, you know, if something isn't working for you, 
talk to people, get advice, think about what other options are that are out there. And again, find like-minded people and have those conversations and, and support one another. And it sounds, re- it almost sounds patronizing, but be kind to one another. You know, we are in um, a, a sort of higher education where there is so much criticism. There is so much conflict. There are so many overachievers. There are so many ambitious, brilliant minds. So it's important to make sure you, you feel supported and cared for uh, in order to thrive and to remember and recognize that we all have value. Our research has value. And, and to um, cultivate what I think is, is, is really significant now is to get a public profile. I encourage all of my PhD students to develop things like Twitter accounts and do public engagement at work because publications take a long time to produce especially when you're doing a PhD at the same time. So my top tip is look at what else you can be doing to bolster your CV, to make sure you are the shiniest candidate possible for the job of your dreams in the future. Because there's lots of things you can do, like writing for the conversation or Discover Society. There's so many different places you can get your work out there so that people know you and start that network building. Absolutely. I think it also goes back to what you've mentioned at the start that academia could do with some creativity. Absolutely. I think this this is, again, where my sort of passions lie, you know, encouraging those postgraduate researchers to be thinking creatively. A PhD won't necessarily get you a job anymore. It's all the other bits around it that help you get those that those sort of great career pathways. So it's thinking creatively. It's seeing how you can share your work out there, how you can make contacts and um, enjoy sharing your ideas because if you go into something like google scholar and you you click on people's profiles or you see how many times work has been read sometimes it's a bit depressing you know the stuff that people have written and there's it hasn't been cited much or hasn't been used much and 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 so much of this is about actually learning to market yourself and your work and i think that's something we have to take on board now is actually a bit of self-promotion to show who we are and what we do might be a bit distasteful for some, but I think it can be really helpful now. Thank you very much, Ruth, uh, for your time and for your insight. And I'm sure uh, this episode will gather a lot of interest and not just sit on some shelf. I think people like to listen in a way that it's more engaging than perhaps a journal article. But thank you again for being with us today and uh, good luck with the rest of your career. Thank you. My pleasure. So I think... You can hear from this episode that we all had a really lovely time recording it. And I think for our discussion now, one of the topics and concepts that really stayed with me after recording this interview was her term, the thanatological imagination. And I absolutely love it for various reasons. I think firstly, because of it reiterates a lot of the conversations we are having about how death studies is such a massive field and such an umbrella term it captures so many different disciplines, uh, academic disciplines, but also so many organizations in the public domain, like the funeral industry or bereavement groups or whatever you want to think. So I really enjoy thinking about the thanatological imagination and how we all try to make sense and work with different concepts and different topics. Yeah, it's a great term, isn't it? And I think it's a great term for emphasising too how important, say, popular culture in its sort of broadest definitions are for, for thinking and learning about death and dying, that your thanatological imagination might be 
provoked by all sorts of different things mm. and that what you then learn and, and think about in those contexts can be of use to you as an individual or collectively at, at different points in your life when when death becomes perhaps more personal on, on, on particular levels you know those ideas have been sort of thought through mm. in, in different ways and, and a particular text might or a particular sort of topic or element of popular culture might provoke your thanatological imagination in quite different ways because of people's different experiences which is such an exciting way of thinking about the idea of imagination anyway that it's shaped people have such different imaginations don't they think through different things and that's partly through experience partly through the the kind of way you've been brought up or the sorts of experiences you've had but also how you how you think because we have such different ways of thinking and and so much neurodiversity in in terms of how we can imagine things yes and also i like to think that our podcast is adding to the thanatological imagination and also speaks to what ruth was talking about how we as academics should be more imaginative and be more creative in the way that we talk with and to and about the public and ideas around death and dying because I think a lot of things are very siloed or sometimes made to sound more complicated or too complicated for a broad audience to understand but then as you say there is so much popular culture that is so great at capturing that public imagination. I love it the Death Studies podcast coming to you live from the thanatological imaginary. <laughs> Maybe we should add it to our merch. Other things that stood out for you? Mm, the, the first thing that really comes to mind is her talking about glossy topic, topics and celebrities and that it might not be as hardcore or heavyweight as some of the other key topics studied in something like sociology, so like class or political movements or whatever. And I often wonder with that is it because it speaks to a public imagination that people feel they can comment on it more and have more ownership because she talks about celebrity deaths and celebrity careers post-mortem it's it speaks to the imagination and i think it's more touchable or tangible for lay people to understand whereas you throw in some more heavy terms it's much more difficult to understand, whereas I don't think it's therefore necessarily an easier topic. It's just something that sparks conversation more easily than some of the more heavy-handed topics. Yeah, for sure. Celebrity is a really good one because it does engage people and get people chatting and interesting and people feel they can have an opinion on it. I think with some other things, perhaps they can be somewhat like intellectually off-putting or people might feel that they're, like you said, heavy, heavy-handed term, heavyweight terms. But they can equally be engaging, I think. it's. I think in death studies is a particular useful way of thinking about it because you do perhaps have a division between the the topics that are more tangibly rooted in people's experiences of death and dying. So, for example, if you are working with and supporting people or, or seeking to do research that might have a more material impact on people's experiences of bereavement care or of their own experiences in hospice or or, or those sorts of examples where that connection to people's most vulnerable moments in their life is really quite Mm. tied and I've read lots of stuff that makes it very clear to me that popular culture can also have a really important role in people's experiences and I think those connections are there but ultimately they are more clearly sort of glossy topics or topics that are 
less directly connected to people's experience and that can mean some different sort of you're working with different things it's a very different stuff mm-hmm. but it's it's also so speaking of the gloss and the gossip Ruth mentioned the For- Forbes list of world's highest paid debt celebrities and at the time of recording the 2021 list hadn't been published yet but I'm looking at the list now and I will give a little pause for the listeners to have a little think about who might be number one on that list. And although for years and years it has been Michael Jackson, last year, for some reason, it is Roald Dahl, the author. And I don't know why. I have been looking at Wikipedia and online. Was there some kind of celebration last year? Because he made $513 million last year whilst being dead. Number two is Prince. Number three is Michael Jackson. And I also don't think, because Ruth was asking, is there a woman in this year's list and there isn't one? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe Ruth can answer for us on Twitter why, why it might have been ruled out. It's interesting that, that a lot of those names are people with a pretty checkered and problematic history, both in terms of the current reception around Roald Dahl and Michael Jackson for very different reasons, um, which, yeah, I'm sure you can... If you're probably aware with Michael Jackson, but you can perhaps look up with Roald Dahl in terms of those debates and things there around views and attitudes. And and yet, yeah, doesn't seem to affect mm. you making money in life or in death. Yeah, because it's in, in last year's list, it's uh, on no, not in the top 10, but on number 13, it's Marilyn Monroe, um, who made $8 million. She's the only woman. And she's in the 2019 list. And a few years ago, in 2012 elizabeth taylor was number one because she made 210 million dollars (laughs) post-death so i don't know what happened in that year for her this whole because i until ruth mentioned it i'd never realized there is that the of the existence of this list but it absolutely fascinates me and i'm thinking how are they making money but also who is this money going to how are they measuring this how are they collating this data and Someone like Amy Winehouse, I would think maybe the years after she died, but there are some famous dead women, I think. Shouldn't they be making a lot of money post-mortem? Mm. Yeah, I guess all sorts of stuff goes into it, both in terms of how like the estate was set up and things like that must be must be key as well. So that is a very sort of interdisciplinary topic that we're just dealing with because it will bring in ideas from like law and sociology, criminology, but so many other things too. I was interested in Ruth's point about sometimes feeling a bit of imposter syndrome about not using primary data in in a sort of subject or field where it's quite common. And I wondered how much of that is because death studies is an interdisciplinary space and that may, you know, those sorts of feelings, I think she was saying more in relation to, to sociology, criminology, those kind of subjects. Whereas my background is more English literature cultural studies things where you aren't necessarily well in cultural studies you, 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 there certainly is a, a lot of primary data in English literature there's more of an accepted notion that you certainly would be working perhaps with I don't want to use the word only <laughs> but primarily with text rather than for example interviewing people as, as one one example of a, of a method that's perhaps generating more primary data but in an interdisciplinary space where you do have that real variety of different methods methodologies and approaches maybe that can then create more sorts of tensions around like oh well what method or methodological approach has more value or so I really like the idea of being imaginative in terms of bringing those together and and 
doing a, a variety of different things, but certainly th- there's always going to be value for me in, in working with texts, as, as I'll use that as quite a broad term, texts. There's a great book on the idea of the text. The text is an anti-disciplinary object. It's intense. Well, that's an intense book. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, I, because I think to date, I have only used primary data in my research. But then I feel it's almost the flip side that I would love to have the tools to also do secondary data analysis or to look at texts or whatever, because there's so much data out there, but there is something with particular disciplines where they say, no, you need to one-on-one speak to people or do ethnography or do focus groups or do whatever. Whereas I think there is so much data out there that one researcher will have gathered and then they might write a paper or a book and then it just sits on a shelf. So I would think it would be so great with a lot of studies if those data sets would be looked at by other people because I think way more interesting stuff will be found also particularly by people who will read it without the baggage of having done the research but just look at it with some distance and think oh this is really interesting or oh this doesn't make sense so yeah more interdisciplinarity is definitely yeah. key and you it can start as well with like a whole discussion around like well yeah one person's data is another person's text one person's text is, oh, don't, <laughs> don't call my text data <laughs> like, i just it's it is fascinating one other thing that really stood out for me as in terms of the like more thinking about life careers that sort of stuff because as we talk about in the episode I'm very engaged with a lot of Ruth's work in terms of what she writes and what she does but naturally she's not necessarily writing into that more about the her as a person and why she's made the choices she's made sort of stuff so it was it was nice to have that from someone whose work isn't particularly autobiographical to hear those kind of things and I really liked the the sort of support and advice around people just figuring out what they want out of life because it, it you only have to go on Twitter now for five minutes to see that it's it's tough out there in terms of jobs and careers and figuring out what you want to do is is really helpful in thinking through what you want to put yourself out there for and why and those sorts of things and it's nice for for me to listen to other people and, and sort of reflect on that because I have made perhaps different decisions to sorts of things other people have made you know I left a full-time permanent quite senior role that that was hard for me to leave but I chose to do it because I just wanted more flexibility around being with my kids and those sorts of things and again absolutely no shade on people who make different choices as well there's no better or worse here there's no kind of like moral judgment around parenting and those kind of things but for me the, the circumstances lined up that I wanted to move away from where I was so that I could spend some time with my kids and, and, and also finish my PhD because I was doing that part-time whilst working full-time and I'm glad and I'm so happy I did all that and I've been very privileged to then find another permanent job that's part-time and super flexible along with some some other really engaging and interesting work but I know if I ever do go back to to a sort of more I have to actually be their job <laughs> like a face <fake laughs> job as I'll call it I know exactly what kind of university I want to work at, but it's it's so useful to just have prompts to think through those kind of ideas. Like, what do I enjoy most about my job? What do I not enjoy? What What's the best bits? What's the not? And why we've come to these different decisions, in particular for women, I think there is clearly a lot of that is down to choices yeah. that people make about about where they are. I mean, family ties are crazy, isn't it? You're, you're in Finland because, can I say, you're in Finland because of a man? <laughs> 
No, but it's true. <laughs> no, but that is that is for me. Like I did my I'm I moved from the Netherlands to the UK to do my PhD. I built a good network in the UK, but then because of personal circumstances, I have decided I don't want to live in England. I want to live in Finland. So I left, which ac academically and career-wise is not the cleverest move, but personally and how I want to live my life, it's absolutely the right move for me. So it's also one of the reasons I'm excited to go back to York in September and to pick some of other people's brains. Because I think and with online conferences and with some of the conversations we've had with people, you don't really always get to that level of why people do the things they do or why certain things happen or don't happen. And I think, yeah, academic conferences are great in that aspect that there's, I've had in the past lots of advice or tips or assurance from people in that, yeah, we all make different life decisions. It's also what Kate Woodthorpe said, like it's all very complex and complicated. And <laughs> Yeah. The chance to meet people humanizes them as well because everyone has all these complicated lives for why they've made the choices they made or, or sometimes they haven't been choices sometimes they've been this is what you have to do to, to survive in a particular situation or do something so yeah I mean it's really important to us that that we try and be as inclusive as we can in terms of the different kinds of, of, of careers and things and we've obviously we've recorded quite a lot of episodes that mm -hmm. haven't necessarily come out but I am conscious we, we've had a few people that haven't Hmm. aren't in the academic sort of side of things and that's been so valuable and great and I loved it I love the episode with Gina Bond and it's been great and we've got other things lined up as well where people can bring us insight from non-academic roles but I'm conscious we we do have some episodes to come out soon with with doctoral students as well and it's going to be great to hear people who and again of like all ages the assumption that a doctoral student is someone who's just finished a, a undergraduate or a master's is it's not quite right, is it? I mean, I, I certainly wasn't. And and we hopefully will have some interviews with people who've decided to do death studies related doctorates later in life and, and find out, yeah, what brought you to that that amazing, exciting choice? Oh, well, it's been amazing to chat to you about this. And if anyone's got any questions or they want to get in touch, please do contact us. We're the death studies podcast at gmail.com or you can check out our website and we will be releasing some photographs of our very exciting merchandise soon so keep following us on twitter or insta and we'll be back again next month with another episode thank you for listening to the deaf studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedeafstudypodcast.com if you enjoyed listening to us please leave us a comment follow us on social media at the deaf podcast and of course, spread the word.